For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A recent study out of the Okinawa Institute of Silence and Technology in Japan showed that human beings have the genetic building blocks to become venomous. We are venom. Meaning that, given the right selection pressures, you and I could eventually evolve fangs that deliver poison. The researchers analyzed the genetic makeup of the Taiwan habu, a brown pit viper that's an invasive species on the island of Okinawa. They were then able to read the snake's genome and determine the function of each of its genes and so they were able to isolate the group of genes responsible for producing venom in the oral glands. It turns out that this collection of genes is common across all amniotes. An amniote is any vertebrate that fertilizes eggs internally or lays them on land. So birds, reptiles, and most mammals, including humans, are amniotes. You've probably heard the term amniotic fluid, for the goo that surrounds a human fetus in the womb. Now, if you were in the uh, agriculture industry, like uh, being subjected to having to go out and do lambing for uh, your mother in the wintertime, uh, we'd call that AB, afterbirth. That's a free one for you. Anyway, you heard that right. Humans could, in theory, evolve to have a deadly bite or kiss. One telltale sign that humans have the building blocks for venomousness is the presence of proteins called calocranes. They're in our saliva already. Calocranes are extremely stable proteins that break down other less stable proteins for digestion, and they are a key component of many kinds of venom across species. Dissolving proteins is useful 
both for humans digesting food and for snakes breaking down muscle tissue in animals they're attacking. Makes me think of how helpful this would be in the late night, slightly overcooked muscle tissue that was in the chewy mule deer steak I gnawed through the other evening. Also, what happens to the high school makeout scene in the future? Gives the term uh, swapping spit something extra, doesn't it? Parents, relax. You won't have to include the possibility of a venom-filled smooch with, uh, you know, quote, the talk. As for this toxic tongue-tying to occur, all of the other tools at our disposal that have helped us survive and procreate would either have to go away, like think of losing your eyesight, but everybody does, or hearing, or maybe the opposable thumb somehow quit showing up. Not likely, right? Well, maybe our surroundings in the future change enough that those tools just become useless. It's in that circumstance, like a possible post-apocalyptic future, that it would then be possible that people with the most calocranes in their saliva would produce more successfully, and maybe millions of years later, we would be uh, snake people. But still... Off the top of my head, I can think of about three or four people who currently, right now, seem, you know, venomous. Maybe you can too. I I plead the fifth. This week, we've got more venom. The Snort Report saga continues, and the Grasslands act. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was hot. 96 in the shade. So hot, you couldn't sleep even after a long, bug-riddled night. My friend Jim, who drew the tag, is 67 years old. He came out to Idaho from New Hampshire when he was 19 and joined the Forest Service. He told me once that his dad owned a fuel company back east, and every Sunday, he would load the kids into the car and drive around collecting late payments. As far as Idaho sheep is concerned... Jim is only eligible to kill a California bighorn sheep, which is why he has been applying for this tag in the Owyhees. The Idaho system for moose, bighorn sheep, and the mountain goat is a -a once-in-a-lifetime system, meaning if you draw a tag and successfully harvest an animal, like Jim did with a Rocky Mountain bighorn, you are no longer eligible to apply for that animal. Unless, of course, you're really rich, then you can participate in auction tags, uh, you know, every year and potentially hunt those animals every year because you got a ton of money. I, of course, find that uh, let's just leave it at a distasteful monetization of public wildlife, shall we? Thanks, I hate it. Anyway, this was Jim's once-in-a-lifetime California bighorn sheep opportunity. We hiked our butts off, slid down hard scrabble slopes 400 feet to the riverbed, climbed back up, baked in the sun, and were mercifully drenched in rain, then blow-dried by 20-mile-an-hour winds on the flat tops that stretched for five or seven miles of flat hiking in the near dark when the water had run out. Covered serious country, and despite walking past and around and through the area Snort was bit, we never did see or hear a rattlesnake. We found sheep, we lost sheep, and never did get a shot at a ram. But, according to Jim, So what, dude? I've killed a bunch of stuff. All I wanted to do was have fun, and this was pretty fun. Furthermore, 
The hunter harvest statistics for this particular hunt are near 100% success. When I pressed old Jim on that, he said, yeah, 100 didn't harvest in 2018 and about the same in 2017. And someone has to be that guy who doesn't fill his tag. And this year it was me. We gave it a good effort and I never would have checked out this country otherwise. We ended up uh, leaving a day early as Jim's leg and foot were numb from sciatica that has uh, pestered him since his high school days. He figured scrambling in the canyon on a numb foot was not the best idea. Maybe this year is the year he'll have a doctor look at it, so he'll be ready for bird season. When I got home and started knocking the dust out of my gear, a small scorpion, about the size of the end of my thumb, scrambled out of my backpack frame. Moving on to the legislation desk and this week's Cal to Action. Did you know that in the last 10 years, the United States has lost 53 million acres of grassland ecosystems? These ecosystems include tall grass, mixed grass, short grass prairie, and sagebrush habitats used by a huge variety of species. Unfortunately, thanks to development and invasive plants, over 70% of grasslands have disappeared. And this has put a big hurt on game species like elk, pronghorn, and upland birds. Since about 1970, pheasant populations have dropped by 70%. Bobwhite quail have declined by 83%. And the overall grassland bird population is down over 40%. Think about the last time you walked through a field. How many birds of all kinds popped up? Those birds are seed spreaders and pollinators and truly as important as the ones you want to put on your plate. To combat this troubling trend, a group of conservation organizations are lobbying Congress to propose the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. The text of this legislation hasn't been released yet, but advocates say it creates a landowner-driven, voluntary, incentive-based program to conserve and restore threatened grassland ecosystems across the continent. It will be modeled after the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which has successfully funded over 3,000 wetland conservation projects to help preserve 30 million acres of habitat. Organizations that I find fantastic like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, NWF, which stands for National Wildlife Federation, and the National Deer Association are hoping to use the Wetland Act model to protect grasslands for future generations. I reached out to Aviva Glasser of the National Wildlife Federation. She told me they're working with a bipartisan group of Congress people and they hope to release the full text of the legislation within the next few months. The bill will provide $350 million annually to fund projects designed to protect and preserve grasslands. These projects will ideally restore native grasses to create habitat for grassland birds or remove invasive species to improve sagebrush health. Basically, if you are a rancher, or any sort of a stakeholder, and you want to work to improve grassland habitat on your range, you'll be able to apply for a grant under this bill to complete that work. Scientists in states across the country have been working for many years to determine the best ways to restore these grasslands, and some of these projects would benefit greatly from Grasslands Act money. In North Texas, for example, 
Several universities and government agencies have been working to restore part of the Texas Blackland Prairie. At 10 sites on both public and private land, researchers used prescribed fire to eliminate non-native species and reseeded those areas with wildflowers and native grasses. The study was designed to determine the best ways to restore prairies for pollinator conservation. Think, you know, butterflies, wasps, and uh, ground-nesting bees. This work is ongoing, but so far, they've been funded by a grant from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. If the Grassland Act passes, they could have more cash to pull if their grant request is approved. And for you elk hunters, the Grasslands Act could improve prospects for more than just the birds and the bees. Elk in many ranges need sagebrush habitat to thrive, but Glasser told me that sagebrush now occupies only 55% of its historic landscape. What's more, 1.2 million acres of sagebrush burn every year due to invasive annual grasses that fuel wildfires. Without these plants, elk might struggle making it through the winter, elk can browse on the taller sagebrush even when other plants are covered in snow, and they are often seen digging around sagebrush to find plants hidden underneath. The good news is that folks have already been working to restore these sagebrush landscapes. In Wyoming, a team of researchers have been working to replant sagebrush within the Douglas Core area of eastern Wyoming. Perennial plant species recover quickly following a wildfire, but sagebrush is much slower to reestablish. To make sure these sagebrush ecosystems return following wildfires, these researchers have planted hundreds of thousands of sagebrush seedlings within the study area. As you might imagine, this work costs a pretty penny. The total investment so far has topped $2 million, and researchers admit that seeding entire landscapes is cost prohibitive. It needs more cash. They've been working on this project since 2012, and they have the support of big organizations like the Bureau of Land Management and the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, but additional Grasslands Act funding would no doubt be useful, and it would allow them to plant even more of the sagebrush habitat that elk love. So once again, that's the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. It doesn't punish farmers or halt crop expansion, and the total investment represents a drop in the federal budget. This is something every elected official should be able to get behind. If you want to help make sure one of America's most iconic landscapes is conserved for future generations of hunters, get on the phone or send an email to your senator and representative Congress has shown a willingness to act on conservation issues in the last few years, but it won't happen unless they know we have their support. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of 
even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Moving on to the Snort Report. I am messing with the format of the show, so if you only tuned in for the Snort Report, well, here you go. The Snort Saga has a mind of its own. If you recall, my 46-pound, almost year-and-a-half female yellow lab was bitten by an adult-sized rattlesnake. It took me roughly nine hours to get her to a vet. By that time, she had lost a lot of blood and was nearing shock, high heart rate, ventral neck and prescapular edema, left ear swollen, approximately doubled necrotic patches, bleeding, and blackened around venom sight, tip of ear appearing friable. That sort of situation. But this has gone on long enough. And you all know, Snort is here, kicking ass, really. Her ear is honestly looking really good. The hair that she's lost doesn't look like it's in a hurry to return. Big scab on top of the bite area. And as long as I can keep the ear lubricated with antibiotic ointment, or this new stuff I'm trying out called Heal It ointment, she won't scratch it. So to celebrate, 
we're going to dive into Venom. Or that is, you know, diving into the topic of Venom. So, what is Venom in the first place? It's a poison, of course, but it's not a poison the way bleach could be a poison. It's not a totally foreign substance to the body that throws a wrench into the biological works. Instead, it's a mixture of the same proteins that can be found in the bodies of the animals that get bit. But, just way too much of those proteins and in all the wrong combinations. One way of thinking about it, your body uses proteins as precise keys, keys like on your keychain, to carefully open up the walls of your cells when it's time to let in nutrients, or to release the chemicals that cause your nerves to fire. But when venom molecules, known as antigens, enter the body, it's like a gang of lunatics with copies of those same keys running around opening all the locks they can get their hands on. Certain kinds of venom hijack the nerves that control muscle contraction and breathing, which leads to paralysis and suffocation. Other types of venom break down blood clotting agents, which causes uncontrollable bleeding. For example, with Snort, I should have been able to effectively stop the bleeding in her ear, but it was extremely difficult. That's those uh, antigens unlocking the locks to coagulation. Another example, when we were giving Snort fluids intravenously, her cells were not opening up to absorb that intravenous fluid. Instead, all that IV fluid turned into additional edema swelling in her neck and chest and face. Other types of venom dissolve the cell membranes of muscle tissue, causing necropsy, like on Snort's ear or the death of that tissue and intense pain. Tissue death can then lead to kidney damage when all those dead muscle cells need to be filtered out of the blood with some kinds of venom. Tissue breakdown releases huge amounts of potassium, and because potassium helps set off each heartbeat, this can cause the heart to lose rhythm and stop. So, yeah. You probably didn't need more reasons to avoid venomous animals, but, you know, if you did. So now, we've covered what venom is, how about who? Like, who should you uh, watch out for? Which animals are venomous? Of course, you got your bees and jellyfish and rattlesnakes, and we'll talk more about rattlesnakes in a minute, but also the platypus, which delivers venom by a spike on its heel. The Eurasian water shrew, which has grooved teeth to carry venomous saliva into its victims and the slow loris, the nocturnal possum-looking fella who is the world's only venomous primate and unfortunately very cute, so it gets uh, kidnapped for private uh, zoos. For a long time, people thought that Komodo dragons, those big lizards also known as monitors that live in Indonesia, were not venomous, but instead killed their prey just through the very toxic bacteria in their mouths that infected bite wounds. I remember learning this as a kid. You probably do too. But the theory of dirty-mouthed dragons was based on a 1981 book whose author had never tested monitor saliva to see what it contained. When scientists revisited the species to discover exactly how the bacteria poisoning was supposed to work, they discovered that, in fact, Komodo dragons delivered venom, and that their mouths were no dirtier than any other species. 
which obviously gave a huge boost to Komodo Dragon morale. Officially, not the bad breath kid on the block. So on behalf of this person who wrote this book, who is obviously like the high school bully in this scenario, who just started a rumor to be mean, you know, we apologize. Beyond the halitosis you so obviously suffer from. Venomousness has evolved in distinct species independently more than 100 times. It turns out that carrying around poison that can make certain animals food and prevent you from becoming food for other animals is a pretty good adaptation to have. The particular species that Snort may have tangled with is known to scientists as Crotalus viridis. Actually, I'm only guessing that's the species, as I was not eager in the moment to track down and catch the culprit, but based on the past several years of data on human snake bites in Owyhee County, where we were at at the time, Crotalus viridis was responsible for every one, according to those reports, so that's what I'm going with. A friend of mine, Dr. Bob Reed, however, was confident that this is firmly in Crotalus litosis zone which is the Great Basin Rattlesnake, and a subspecies of Crotalus origanus. And remember, all of these were just lumped together under Western Rattlesnake, like in the 80s. And, you know, also please remember this is supposed to be like a 20-minute podcast in which I'm attempting to educate and entertain and not just bore the hell out of you. So anyway, the genus name Crotalus comes from the ancient Greek word for castanet, You know, that small percussion clapper you've maybe seen flamenco dancers use. All the crotalus snakes, therefore, have, at the end of their tails, a series of hollow, interlocking segments made of keratin, the same substance that your fingernails are made out of, or a rhino horn for that matter. When threats approach, they shake this tail, clicking those keratin segments together, and creating that unmistakable and spine-tingling sound... We're talking, of course, about the rattlesnake. Different species of snake have different kinds of venom, and there's a ton of venom diversity even across the different Crotalus species. For example, the Mojave rattlesnake, or Crotalus scutalitus, native to northern Mexico and Arizona, has about 25 different compounds in its venom. But those compounds are very concentrated, making it one of the deadliest snakes in the U.S., Whereas, the venom of Crotalus viridus, or the prairie rattlesnake that could have bit Snort, it's a candidate at least, remember, has over 100 different compounds, which sounds scary. More compounds has to equal worse bite, right? Well, thankfully, all of those compounds are much less concentrated than those of the Mojave rattler's venom. It turns out that if Snort had to get bit, this was not like the worst kind of snake to get bit by. So, why is there so much venom variation? Why can't we just lump all these snakes together? Many animals who share habitat with venomous snakes have developed anti-venom in their systems. When the existing venom becomes less effective against these animals, individual snakes who develop a slightly different venom have an evolutionary advantage. And individual squirrels, let's say, who happen to have slightly better anti-venom variations, have a better advantage as the prey species. Over time, each species changes in response to the innovations from the other side in what's known as an evolutionary arms race. As populations of snakes separate over time, those distinct populations evolve in different directions, and so today, 
we have the prairie rattlesnake, the Mojave variety, and as many as 45 others, all with different venom cocktails. All right, how does anti-venom work? Remember, all those lunatics running around with keys that we talked about opening all the body's locks? Anti-venom compounds are like a bunch of fake locks for those keys to fit into. Their molecules bind to the outside of venom antigens before those antigens can bind to other cells in the body and do their damage. You and I would produce some anti-venom if we were bitten by a snake, and certain humans have strengthened that response systematically to become extremely resistant to snake bites. For example, in 1948, snake showman and venom scientist Bill Host began injecting himself with doses of diluted cobra venom on a regular basis. Soon, he had developed such a strong resistance to multiple kinds of venom that in 1954, he survived a bite from a blue crate that's spelled K-R-A-I-T, possibly the most poisonous snake in the world. His system contained so many anti-venom compounds that transfusions of his blood were used to save the lives of at least 20 snakebite victims from all over the world. Thankfully for them, cobra venom was the only thing Bill was shooting into himself. As it turns out, not many people are willing to sign up for cobra venom shots, so all the commercially available anti-venom is produced by injecting animals, sheep most commonly, with weakened venom. Then, harvesting the antigen-binding compounds they produce, processing those compounds, and packaging them in a vial. Scientists can't design a better anti-venom than the stuff that occurs naturally in animals. But these anti-venoms aren't one-size-fits-all. Just as certain animals develop defenses specific to the venom of the snakes in their habitat, the commercial anti-venom has to be designed around snakes in your habitat. If it was developed by injecting coral snakes and you got bit by a western rattlesnake, let's say, that wouldn't do you much good. The most common anti-venom in the U.S. is called Crofab. Cro for crotalus, or rattlesnake, and fab for fragment antigen binding, or the lock and key mechanism that we've been talking about. And it's made by injecting the venom of the four most common vipers in the U.S. into sheep. Although Snort's Crotalus viridis, or Crotalus lutosus, isn't one of those four snakes, the spectrum of all of those different venom compounds overlaps with the prairie rattler well enough, or Crotalus lutosus, the great basin rattlesnake, to work. Or, you know, subjectively, in our case, it really seemed to. We were in a situation where Snort was not doing well. We were almost 24 hours away from the time of the bite, she was not reproducing red blood cells. Her protein levels were dropping. She still had a relatively high heart rate. The IV fluids that we were trying to give her were not being taken into the body. Again, they were actually causing more edema and swelling. She was not doing any outs, as they would say, not urinating or defecating. She was not wanting to eat or drink. All signs that things just weren't really happening. And at that point, Dr. Heidi Wog said, we got to try this. And I said, no, nah, let's do it. And man, in our case, the reaction was pretty instantaneous. So the dog started eating. And eventually, uh, after that first and only bag of anti-venom, she got up and took her outside and she peed. And it was like a monumentous pee. Long pee. Good pee. 
and uh, she didn't have to get a catheter to drain that urine out of her, which is extremely painful. So that antivenom situation there, like, is a little controversial, right? It's expensive stuff. It's very late in the game, but the dog responded to it. Anyway, thought I'd hit you with a couple of quick hitters on our outro here. Cats, pound for pound, are more likely to survive a snake bite than dogs. The most venom-resistant animals in the world are actually predators, not prey, suggesting that venom was developed for defense rather than offense. And finally, snake venom is used in all kinds of medical treatments, and in 2006, our friend Bill Host told the Miami Herald, quote, I could become a poster boy for the health benefits of venom. If I live to be 100, I'll really make that point. When you know it, Bill Haas died in 2011 at age 100. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, it's the fall. Limbs are dropping. Leaves are dropping. You want to be outside. Don't let a tree branch across the road slow you down. Pick up a beautiful, powerful, clean, quiet, lightweight, handy-dandy, steel, electric-powered chainsaw to keep you running all weekend long. Visit www.steeldealers.com. Find a steel dealer near you. They will set you up. They're great people. They love what they're doing. And, most importantly, don't forget to tell me what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's AskCal at TheMeatEater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY.